Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta. I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening. For almost two centuries, kindergarten has been considered the beginning of formal education. The researchers have known for quite a while now that education starts at birth. A new documentary explains why pre-kindergarten learning programs should be available to all children. Director Willa Camera explores this topic in her film, Starting at Zero, Reimagining Education in America. She'll join us later this hour. First, a reason to celebrate. For classical music lovers in Atlanta, the arrival of fall signals a new season of concerts by the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. As the COVID-19 pandemic continues, the ASO has had to reconceive the concert experience. And the good news is there will be a new season lineup beginning in September. Jennifer Barlament is the executive director of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. She is with us now via Zoom. Jennifer, welcome back to City Lights. Well, thank you so much, Lois, for, for having me and giving me a chance to talk about this exciting news about the fall season. It is exciting because we have missed our orchestra. Much of the thrill of attending a symphony concert is hearing 80-some musicians performing live together on stage. Please tell us how the ASO will present the new fall season. Sure. So what we're announcing this week is what we're calling the first phase of the reimagination of the fall season. And following guidelines and from health authorities and from the state of Georgia, from the city of Atlanta, um, our main goal is to keep everyone safe um, and make sure that whatever we're doing is something that we feel very confident about from that perspective. But within that context, of course, we want to be able to provide 
beautiful music to Atlanta and also give our musicians the chance to come back together and perform. And so what we have done is we've reimagined our subscription program in the fall as a little bit smaller. So keeping within that 50 person um, gathering maximum with uh, detailed uh, safety protocols for the orchestra. And then um, rather than inviting an audience into the hall with us, which um, really does feel a little unsafe right now, we're going to um, be recording all of our concerts this fall and providing them to our audiences via the internet. So it's a whole different scenario for the fall, but we're excited to be able to come back together and make music and give that to people in a way that will hopefully give them hope and excitement and uh, inspiration. What was the reaction from musicians? You know, I think everybody knows being a musician is not just a job. It is a passion and a purpose in life. And so for them, the prospect of having this great music to play, something to look forward to, was very exciting and very motivating. Um, and so we were delighted to be able to share the details with them and have been working with them throughout the summer on, um, on ways to play together and ways to come back. At the same time, obviously, everyone has a lot of questions. And so um, that's what we'll be doing over the course of the next six weeks or so before we come back together is um, answering all of those questions and making sure everyone's comfortable. I've read that it's one thing for string players to come together. They can wear masks for winds and brass. It's a different story. Will those sections be performing? They will. It will definitely be smaller. So you're not going to hear a lot of big Mahler in the fall. Um, and uh, so we'll have... Uh, roughly, you know, 45 musicians playing together at any one time, of which maybe, um, you know, 10 or 12 will be uh, woodwind or brass players. And really, this is just to limit the amount of potential exposure. We also have um, a whole system of plexiglass that uh, we'll be putting in place on the symphony hall stage. Um, so it's going to look, it's going to look and feel pretty different. And that's why we want to be careful to you know, come back and give people a chance to um, really get accustomed to the, the new environment that they'll be playing in in the fall. Oh, wow. Where will the plexiglass be? It'll be around uh, the wind and brass players. Ah. Well, there is no shortage of great music in the lineup, including some of the best-loved classics all-time crowd pleasers. And the season opener will be dazzling. Can you share with us some of the specifics for the fall lineup? Absolutely. Well, we really, um, working with Robert Spano and Donald Ronicles, um, our music director and principal guest conductor, what we wanted to provide was inspiring music things that are um, comforting, familiar, and um, and also just really uh, engaging. And so the first concert of the season is an all Beethoven program. Um, we're delighted to still be able to um, have Gil Shaham, the great violinist, joining us. He'll play the violin concerto by Beethoven. And then um, we also have on the program Beethoven's Great Fifth Symphony, which is such a um, statement of triumph over adversity, which we think is just perfect for um, for these times. We also have some 
great Mozart on the program, Haydn, uh, Brahms. It's a, it's a kind of lineup of uh, greatest hits of classical music um, with a few unexpected treasures in there as well, including um, our principal bassoonist, Andrew Brady, playing a bassoon concerto by a composer named Hertel. So it's an unfamiliar one to me, and I think will be unfamiliar to others, but a, a great uh, discovery for sure. And some other musicians of the ASO in the solo spotlight as well. I see principal cellist Reiner Udekis will be performing a solo as well. Yeah, yeah. So he'll be performing uh, one of the Haydn cello concertos. And, you know, we really thought of this fall season as how do we um, support and feature our friends and family of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. And so in addition to those two principal members of the Atlanta Symphony, uh, Andrew Brady and Rainer Unikas will also be featuring one of the star graduates of our talent development program, Xavier Foley, a fabulous bass player. Um, and we're really excited to have him on our stage as well. Oh, that is going to be marvelous. And what a feather in the cap of the talent development program. Uh, though there have been many impressive graduates of that ASO program. That is true. We're really proud. I'm wondering about how you will capture the concerts in the moment. You said that you have new video recording equipment. This gives new meaning to quite a production. Uh, Jennifer, did you ever imagine you would be in the audio-video production end of the business? <laughs> That's funny. One of my colleagues said that you know, back in March, we pretty much all went overnight from being a live orchestra performing organization to being a recording company. And um, so it's not as though we don't have experience. The Atlanta Symphony has a very long history of making great recordings. We, we have 27 Grammys under our belt, and so we've recorded a lot in the past. Um, video recording is, is, on a regular basis, is slightly newer to us. Uh, over the past few years, we've been, um, been t uh, testing, putting our toes in the water and trying out a few video simulcasts and live stream events, including concerts with Joshua Bell and Yo-Yo Ma and um, the great pianist Long Long. And so we've, we've dipped our toe in the water, but this is really sort of full force, uh, the real focus of the fall. Um, you're correct that we've uh, had uh, some very generous donors step forward and make it possible for us to install cameras, very high quality camera equipment in Symphony Hall so we can capture the nuance and the excitement and the rosin on the bow um, of these of these performances that we'll be capturing. And, um, and it is going to be, we're just going to have to operate in a whole different way, but we're, um, the team as a whole is very excited about the opportunities that that presents to us. The fall season goes into December, the early part of December. What can you tell us about Natalie Stutzman, a conductor making her ASO debut? 
Well, we're very excited to see her. She was actually originally on the schedule um, to conduct the Messiah last December and unfortunately had to bow out. Um, and uh, so we're excited to have her in front of the orchestra. She's a very famous uh, mezzo-soprano, has been singing for many years, and it turns out all along she had a real passion for conducting, and she's now making that her full-time career. And uh, so she'll be joining us for... Uh, you know, lovely programs, and we're very excited. She has a very passionate and almost vocal approach to conducting. Well, certainly well suited to our ensemble, given the illustrious history of the ASO chorus and Maestro Spano and Ronan Cole's love of opera as well. It's early, I know, but has there been any discussion about the possibility of audiences returning to the hall for the spring lineup? Absolutely. I mean, of course, you know, there's nothing like being in the room. Um, those of us who have been passionate concert goers for years uh, know that. And, um, and so we're excited to, um, to have a day when audiences could come back in the room. I will say we will monitor the situation as soon as it is possible to have audiences return, even in small numbers, we will, um, we will for sure make that possible. Um, I'll also mention that this fall, we're announcing the rethinking of the fall in different phases. And one of the phases that we're working on right now is um, determining where there are maybe outdoor venues where it's possible to have live audiences. And so we're looking at you know, perhaps chamber ensemble performances in various outdoor locations. Uh, we currently have chamber ensembles playing um, at the Botanical Garden on an occasional basis, and we'll, we'll look to ramp up that activity as well. So there are, there are ways for us to be together. It's just that you have to be very safe about it and very conscious of the, of the condition. Well, this is... Very exciting. Jennifer Barlament, congratulations to you and the ASO on this wonderful fall lineup, and thank you for talking with us. Oh, thank you so much, Lois. I look forward to seeing you soon. Jennifer Barlament is the executive director of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. There will be more information about the ASO's new season on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. And you can hear broadcasts of the Atlanta Symphony Sundays at 9 p.m. here on 90.1 WABE Atlanta. We'll be back in a moment. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. 
For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. When I last spoke with the food writer and cookbook author Anne Byrne in April, we were still under shelter-in-place orders. She spoke about different recipes to try while at home, and some of her favorites come from other eras of tough times, such as the Depression and World War II. Byrne wrote her first book, The Cake Mix Doctor, in 1999. It was an immediate success, with four million copies sold to date. She's written several more cookbooks, most recently, Skillet Love. I asked Anne Byrne why people turn to baking for relief from stress. You know, there's probably a couple of really good reasons. One, maybe baking was in the home when they grew up, and so they remember a mother or a grandmother baking. And so getting in the kitchen and sort of reliving that and and going through those motions seems a very comforting sort of exercise. Another reason might be if you've got young children in the house or grandchildren, it keeps people busy. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and, and when you're busy, your mind doesn't wander and you don't worry about things because you've, you've got to keep your mind on the task at hand, whether it's how long the bread has been rising or how long have the cookies been in the oven. So I think that baking is, is something that completely goes by the wayside when times are hectic and we just don't have time for it. But boy, when we're home, we do have time for it and we can kind of, you know, we can really get lost in it. This is true, and apparently millions of Americans are doing just that. Part of what's so enjoyable about your cookbooks is reading the information you include on food anthropology and history. What do we know about baking during other historic crises? Well, baking really was important and it sustained people and it did embrace you know all of the the family recipes held people together the the recipes that were attached to holidays in spite of war times or depression you still wanted the the sugar cookies or something to be on the table i think that the the baking was symbolic of, of a regular life and so it was really important to keep specific recipes you know on hand. And in other aspects, baking was just what you did. It was like putting in a garden. It was it was feeding your family. And and also in, in the war years, World War One and Two, what you baked with was greatly rationed. Uh, and I think people can relate to this now. You go down the baking aisle of the supermarket and there's no yeast or there's no unbleached flour. That's how it used to be. And people made an awful lot of substitutions. And, you know, you can go back through old cookbooks of the 30s and 40s and it's mock this and mock that because <laughs> it didn't, they didn't have apples. So you put uh, Ritz crackers in there instead. Can you think of any other examples of substitutions or improvisatory approaches to recipes during the war or the depression? 
on and on. I mean, I think not only for key ingredients like apples, but, um, but you know, something like butter and milk were, uh, you know, and th those cakes, it was called war cake, really. And no eggs. If you didn't live on a farm, you didn't have eggs. So if you want to bake a cake, that gets pretty, pretty difficult. And so there was the cake. It's called the war cake. It's called the depression cake. In, in my American cake book, I call it cowboy cake because you can make it in a Dutch oven, but it really is just stewed down fruit and vegetable shortening and some flour to hold it together and a ton of spices. And it's delicious, you know, <laughs> and, and it great, it really resembles uh, sticky toffee pudding for people who have lived in uh, England and Australia and places where sticky toffee pudding is sort of the national dessert. And you have to think that that must have they must have come by that dessert honestly because England is a country that was well accustomed to war rationing when it came to baking and so I, I, I think they must be very proud that that is the dish that, that that belongs to them and it's a delicious cake and it's a pudding and when served warm with a butterscotch sauce I mean you can't resist it it's delicious. So there are recipes that have survived these times of crisis. What is the war cake? Well, that is that cake. It's stewed fruit and vegetable shortening, no eggs, no fancy butter in it whatsoever, never any chocolate. I mean, it's what people had on their cupboard. And I think it's a catch-all phrase too, Lois, because I mean, if you look through a lot of cookbooks, any cake that didn't have eggs in it or didn't have butter and it was called a war cake. Um, MFK Fisher, who's a wonderful writer, and in one of her books, How to Cook a Wolf, she really talks about the wolf at the door and how to keep the wolf away and how, how you can eat well, you know, on really meager foods. That's a wonderful reading recommendation, not only for her thoughts on food, but her descriptions of France, of scenery, just her writing style. I'm going to go read some of that. I just love her, you know, and I think that it reminds us all that as aggravating as this time is right now, and it's such an inconvenience and it's heartbreaking, that possibly there's something we're going to get out of it. And, and if it's something that comes out of the kitchen, you know, maybe we did learn, we took the time to learn how to make a loaf of bread, or we went through an old recipe box, you know, that belonged to our mother. And, and, and we just slowed down long enough. We'll realize that a lot of other folks have been through terrible times and have fed families. And when you come out of it, there is, a, there is such a greater appreciation for food. And I remember my mother always talking about why we got oranges in our stockings at Christmas. And it was because she was born in 25 and she was the last of five girls in the family. And she lived through the depression and she said, you know, oranges were really precious. Mm -hmm. And so that was it in the stocking, maybe a bar of chocolate and an orange. And she recalls the flavor of, you know, tasting an orange when you hadn't had one. Maybe that's good for us. Yes, and certainly Proust comes back to mind with associating that flavor with a precious moment, such as Christmas or just being home together at times like this. Bread intimidates many people. 
from baking, though the run on yeast suggests more are willing to try. Is baking bread any more therapeutic than baking desserts, Anne? Hmm. I think it just it maybe gets back to how, how you like to spend your time. You know, bread baking requires kneading. It requires, I think, a little bit of strength. You're going to have bread with better texture, better elasticity to it if you give it a turn on the counter and sort of push and pummel it with your palm and flip it over and slap it. And if that helps you get your frustrations out, so be it. You know, I think also if you when you learn to make bread, you realize when you need it, it does sort of activate the gluten in the flour and turns it on and you don't have to add as much flour. So what you really get is a bread that is uh, more moist and delicious and better textured than adding too much flour to a recipe because it's it's the the dough seems sticky. You have to work the dough and you need to use a flour with a high enough protein count, not to get too technical here, but you know, an uh, an unbleached all purpose like a King Arthur or or a bread flour that has that protein in there that'll really help pull that loaf uh, of bread together. So there are a couple of things I think to know about bread baking and, and in pastry work, it's completely different because, you know, pastry work, we're the folks with the cold hands, you know, <laughs> we don't have the big hot hands, we're the cold hands. And I think that, you know, we barely touch the biscuits, you know, we don't want to over touch things because with the pie crust, we barely work it in and out of the fridge, in and out of the oven. And I think that's an art in itself. And it does, it does kind of take hours of your time as well, if you enjoy it. What are some of your recipe recommendations for baking during this difficult time? Wow. Um, you know, as far as breads go, I would say master a loaf of bread, a loaf of bread, whatever kind of flour you can find at the market master a loaf of bread. I did see, not to just say specific sites, but I think you can go to King Arthur is always so reputable. Um, I did see a, a nice loaf of bread on uh, Taste of Home, where they actually kind of give you the do's and the don'ts and really hand and holds you through the process of making a loaf of bread. Also, pizza dough is awfully easy and fun. Uh, we've been experimenting with it here at my house and, you know, making a, a sponge first. You know, it's not really a sponge you clean the sink with, but it's sort of a little yeasty puff up, develops flavor, and then you throw that in the bowl with the rest of your flour and um, a little olive oil. And it's awful, awfully fun. And it's quick and, you know, kids can help with it. And then we've been experimenting whether we like them best in a skillet in the hot oven or do we take them out to the barbecue grill, you know, turn the grill on as high as we can get it. We've got a pizza stone we put on the grill out there. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> and then, you know, with some pasta sauce and couple of cups of shredded mozzarella, I mean, you've got a pretty nice meal. So that, that would be bread, those two things. And for desserts, American cake, American cookie. Oh, wow. I'd say if you've got American cake at home, go to the chapter on hard times and just read about those cakes. The 1917 applesauce cake, that was a World War I cake. Using applesauce really 
as for, for some of the fat in the recipe and also to keep the cake moist. I love that. Um, if you've got American cookie, oh boy, so many of those old um, German recipes. You know, the cookies are so easy to make with whatever you have because they take substitutions so nicely. I mean, you, you can make cookies with butter or vegetable shortening. You, snickerdoodle cookies are probably the cheapest thing to make and you've got everything in the house. Um, I, I love cookies because they, they just, you know, they're not picky. <laughs> they're not picky, you know, and then you can stick them in the freezer and then you've got them. So if they last long enough, <laughs> Yeah, or you can leave them on the porch, on your porch in little sacks, and then tell your friends to drive by and pick up a sack. Cookies at a safe distance. <laughs> exactly. I think really it, it boils down to what you said first, Lois. It's like with what ingredients we have on hand, because this is a real test for people's creativity and adaptability to be able to cook with whatever is in their freezer in the pantry or whatever they could find in the store. Have you found yourself creating anything new during the crisis? Wow. You know, I tend to fall back on old favorites. Um, I went to the supermarket uh, because I hadn't been. And, uh, and I did. I went to the bean aisle. I always make a big pot of split pea soup. I, I think having soup and having the makings for soup makes me feel like I can survive anything. I have flour. I actually keep flour in the freezer. I do have that. So I have been making bread. I like to make a scratch uh, chicken soup with cooking the chicken. And I do believe that cooking chicken with the bone in and with the skin on gives not only a lot more flavor to the chicken soup, but also it gives the broth the fat it needs. And for folks out there who will get a sick, and if you've got somebody in your house that you're cooking for, I think to be able to make chicken broth with the skin on and the bone of the chicken um, is just a much healthier way to do it. It really fights phlegm. It's a really healthy way to fight colds and viruses. And your cookbooks tell stories. And you've said that one of your goals is to write cookbooks that can read like a novel. Are there any particular stories from all those you've researched with special meaning for this crisis? Any of those stories that come to mind? Well, probably if you go to, I'd say American Cake, the resourcefulness of people. Uh, I, I think that entire chapter that begins 1917 through and how resourceful people were I love the stories about people baking fruitcakes from what they had and shipping fruitcakes to our, our servicemen overseas because they were good shippers. I mean, people used to bake and they used to ship food a lot. I think we've completely forgotten about that because everybody in the world bakes and ships to us. <laughs> but we, we used to. I love the cakes that were named for something like the Brooklyn blackout cake. So named because it was dark and chocolate and it was named at that period of time when there were enforced blackouts in Brooklyn during World War II. If you look back at cakes all around us, we don't think about it, 
but there's there's a story there. Leah Chase, who died right last year, Dookie Chase Restaurant in New Orleans shared with me her butter cake recipe for American cake. She grew up very poor, rural uh, Louisiana, and they only had the makings to make this cake once a year, and it was at Christmas. And she she grew up uh, where they made it with uh, confectioner sugar, a pound of confectioner sugar, and it was the way they made it every year. I mean, another a way to make pound cakes really speak volumes. The, the old cold oven pound cakes, Lois, where you used to put them in a in an oven and then would turn it on the gas oven because people were saving fuel. And they found out that actually the pound cake baked a lot better and more consistent and evenly and the crumb was nicely textured because because the, the temperature of the oven sort of had gently raised through the process. Slow baking. Uh, slow baking. That's right. You know, and then gingerbread and what it means to this country and how people, regardless of where you lived, when you lived, how much money you had, most everybody made some kind of ginger cake or gingerbread. And um, I love the version that uh, came out of Alabama, George Washington Carver's peanut cake, which was made in the 1920s, you know, when he was doing the research and trying to grow peanuts on soil that had been robbed of all its nutrients because of cotton and the poor and trying to get, you know, really create an industry using peanuts in the South. And then the pineapple upside down cake. I mean, to me that, that says America at its finest. I mean, we've all got a skillet. You got a can of pineapple and you know, you can create a lot of surprise and wonder from very, very simple ingredients. And Bern, we always learn interesting history about food. It's such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure, Lois. Thank you for having me. The popular cookbook author Anne Byrne writes about the history of food and baking. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. Kindergarten began in Germany and arrived in the United States in the mid-19th century. Since that time, kindergarten has been considered the beginning of formal education. But for a long time now, researchers have known that education really starts at birth. And pre-kindergarten learning programs should be available to all. Willa Kammerer explores this in depth with her documentary, Starting at Zero. She joins us now. Willa, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here with you. And I love knowing that you began your career as a public radio intern. Great to have one of the family on the other end of the microphone. Definitely, and it gives me a lot of respect for everything that you do. (laughs) Well, I have a lot of respect for filmmaking, and this is your first feature-length documentary. What inspired you to create Starting at Zero? 
Well, you know, as with many things in life, it, it was something that just really evolved along the way. We actually never set out to make a feature length documentary. It just evolved into that. I worked closely throughout the evolution of the project with my client, the Salzance Charitable Foundation, who initially, you know, came to me with this idea they, uh, about creating a how-to video about how the state of Alabama had accomplished consistently the number one nationally rated pre-K program in the nation for over 10 years. You know, I think at the time Alabama was ranked the fourth poorest state. So how how did they accomplish this? And so he was kind of curious to look into that story. And, and you know, I was game to partner with them on that. And um, we traveled down to Alabama. This was back in late 2017. You know, first we had some meetings with the team in Alabama. And it really just set off this process of discovery, learning about that program and realizing that it had roots in a lot of other places as well. And, and so it really took us around the country in unexpected ways. We should add the Saul Zantz Foundation was started by the late record and film producer Saul Zantz, and it's a very impressive nonprofit organization with a focus on education. I guess we're accustomed to associating Alabama with football and, for the most part, more conservative politics. There certainly is a history of racial discrimination, and there has been much change for the better in the course of Alabama history. But this is a surprise to learn that Alabama would be at the forefront of the nation when it comes to progressive education. How did that happen? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And it's something that really intrigued us and surprised us as well as we were digging more into this story. You know, we really, you know, I grew up in the Northeast and uh, we're not from the South. And so it was kind of going into a new world for us. But one of the things that we learned through our time in Alabama and then in Mississippi and North Carolina and other Southern states is, well, family is very important in the South in their culture. And so, you know, wanting to create high quality, you know, upbringings for their children is, is one aspect, but it's also, they see this as the workforce of their future. And they're very, you know, Republican conservative politicians, you know, are typically very focused on the economy and business leaders in their communities are really saying, hey, we need a strong pipeline if we're going to remain competitive and if we're going to be successful in the future. And so there's a lot of conservative, you know, red states who you wouldn't necessarily associate with progressive education programs that have really been prioritizing high quality early childhood education as this issue of the workforce of the future. And then not to mention, you know, the benefits for today's workforce as well, because parents have a place, you know, where they can feel good about dropping their children off while, while they go to work themselves. There is a governor's task force of sort. Would you talk about that aspect of the film? 
Sure, definitely. Yeah, that was another thread that really evolved through the project. Again, we never set out to focus at first on governors, but through our interviews and, and learning just the nuts and bolts of how programs work and what it takes in states to get high quality programs in action, we learned, you know, it's really important to have the buy-in from legislators and really at ultimately to have the support of the governor. And one of the reasons Alabama has been so successful is that multiple governors you know, through transitions have consistently supported funding for the program. Whereas so often, as we know, one governor will come in with a priority, they'll focus on it, they'll invest in it, and then the next governor will come in with a new priority and will undo or, or just discontinue, you know, what the previous governor has started. So that's one of the reasons, you know, Alabama has been so successful. And I think we began to see governors as this real kind of lever for the potential of this expanding just on a national level, you know, if, if, and governors all learn from each other, you know, they convene through organizations like the National Governors Association. And so, you know, our theory through the production became, you know, if governors can get on board and learn from each other, learn from the success of states like Alabama and adopt lessons learned and frameworks that have been proven successful and implemented in their own states, then, you know, there's real potential for state by state, you know, this, this expanding and beginning to have, you know, real national reach and impact. So. And in the film, it's remarkable that with each of the governors who appear on camera, with each of the governors interviewed, you don't state their party affiliation. This is an issue that transcends partisanship. And it's really encouraging to see how it is playing out as a bipartisan issue, because it should be. Going back to the idealism, what are some of the standards that make up a high-quality pre-kindergarten learning setup? Sure. Now you're testing how much I've learned about high-quality early childhood education throughout this project, because we definitely all came in as outsiders. So, you know, everyone really emphasizes just the critical, it's a very human endeavor. You really can't replace the human element of how important just caring, loving, responsive relationships between adults and children are for the connecting of neurons in the brain and, you know, just the development of social and emotional skills. That's something that is definitely emphasized in the Alabama program and in high quality programs that we encountered through this is just a real trust that the learning of numbers and letters and how to spell and how to write, all of that will come so much more naturally at later times if there is this strong foundation of social emotional comfort and learning and, and just knowing how to interact with other people, with their peers, with teachers, executive functioning skills, you know, all those are just so important. And then the environment is important as well, having it be a stimulating environment with lots of different 
activities so that children can learn through play. And as we say, in the, one of the teachers says in the film, you know, they think they're playing, but what they're actually doing is learning. Of course, play is the work of children. Right, it's their jobs. <laughs> Indeed, I loved how maybe it was one of the educators who said, you can see an inspiring teacher because she's directing like a maestro. Oh, yes, that would be Diane Schanzenbach, you know, who just provided a wonderful perspective. Yes, yes. And indeed, that is terrific. So we've talked about governors and uh, secretaries of commerce and education. Who is your target audience for this film? Well, you know, back to this idea that we really want this film to make an impact. You know, we wanted to tell a positive story and provide a roadmap for how people and states could begin to accomplish this uh, in a very hands-on way. And so, you know, first and foremost, our target audience really has been policymakers, you know, uh, the teams and governor's offices. But of course, you know, parents are so important in the entire, you know, education community and, and field. Um, and there's so many, you know, one of the things that we learned is that it's, it's really quote unquote, a, a field. Um, it doesn't necessarily, early education touches so many overlapping sectors from healthcare, pediatrics to public health is just an expansive issue. And so everybody really needs to work together. And so, you know, we wanted this film to include voices from all of those places, as well as hopefully be able to speak to all those audiences. What can you tell us about the data discussed in the film relating to children who attended early education programs versus those who did not? Sure. Well, I can't give you the exact statistics, but I will say, you know, just it's just across the board, it just proves itself to be such a, a powerful investment because, you know, children are more likely to graduate from high school, to be employed, to go to college, to, you know, be reading at the level that they should be reading um, in third grade, you know, which has been a measure for whether they'll be successful later in schooling and later in life. And one of the really powerful things demonstrated by the Alabama program, and actually a study just came out after uh, we finished the film, but the study and what we talk about in the film is that the Alabama program has really shown students who come in from, you know, marginalized, underprivileged, who just really are, are kind of starting a step behind the pre-kindergarten program just that one year and one year is definitely not enough but that year still has a major impact on getting them to the level um, of their peers um, which has positive impacts throughout their schooling and life. And another point made in the film is that was it 70 percent of mothers work outside the home and pre-kindergarten programs must serve households where there isn't someone at home all day to take care of a child. But with the positive results, the glowing results of this research, those should assuage any guilt or misgivings that 
parents might have about not being stay-at-home parents before a child begins kindergarten or first grade. Right, right. And I think that's where also, you know, there's a real opportunity and need for states and leaders to just lead here and, and comfort their citizens, you know, that there really are high quality opportunities available. You know, the reality right now is that it's pretty patchwork, you know, um, many programs are private, many programs are very expensive, you know, these high quality programs, like in Alabama, you know, so far just don't have the coverage, you know, that truly offers every single child and, and parent the, the comfort of that high quality learning experience. So there is a gap here right now. Um, and parents are placed in this difficult position of having to spend a lot of money, you know, to have their children in hopefully a high quality setting, but in many cases, they're not actually high quality, but they're quite expensive. So it's something that we really need to reflect on as a society. And I think there is a, a real opportunity for state leaders and hopefully at some point federal leaders to just really begin to prioritize this for all of the positive benefits down the line in the future, not to mention the, the benefits to, to current society. Was it intentional that this film should debut on the eve of an election? <laughs> it's just how life works out sometimes. You know, we've been working on this film so long and actually the, the pandemic really presented it at first presented a challenge, but also, you know, a real opportunity for us. We were actually planning a premiere and in-person classic, you know, um, screening uh, back in May. And it would have been a much smaller event. And we were had a different cut of the film at that point. And that was going to be our big debut. But um, we obviously put all plans on hold with it, having an in-person event as, you know, we, we all began to navigate this new normal, uh, virtual normal, and we began just very quickly shifting course. We just kept wanting to rework the film a little bit just to really make sure it was in tune and, and feeling current um, with the moment. You know, we just really strengthened some of the calls for equity and bipartisanship, nonpartisanship, really. Um, and it just so happens, you know, that the timing really feels like it is kind of perfectly aligning in this time before the election. The emphasis that the educational experts make in your film point to the fact that if we are to have inspired teachers, and especially early learning with inspired, excited teachers, we need to fund them better. Teachers need to earn more. Is it your hope that in a nonpartisan way, the documentary will inspire people to advocate legislation that would promote publicly funding early educational programs? Absolutely. And you know, those teachers are the ones who day in and day out are with the children and are just responsible for so much of their development at just this really key point in 
a child's life and a person's life trajectory. And I think to this point, we've really, I think it's starting to sink in a little bit more, but we've just not as a society placed value on the expertise and the skill and the real work that goes into working with young children. Um, it's certainly not just babysitting, you know, um, high, high quality, you know, early educators have deep understanding of child's development. And so it's, it's a two-way street. We absolutely need to provide and require better training for teachers and at the same time pay them livable and, and frankly, you know, really respectable <laughs> salaries to align with the really critical role in our society that they play. So someone has to go first and we would like everyone to, you know, jump in at the same time and just really prioritize this as a society. Director Willa Kammerer, her new documentary, Starting at Zero, Reimagining Education in America, will be streamed in virtual cinemas tomorrow. There will be more information on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11 with the celebrated civil rights photographers Sheila Prebright and Steve Shapiro. Their works are part of a new show at Jackson Fine Art. Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden are City Lights producers. Our engineer is Kevin Brinker, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. And if you want to subscribe to our podcast, it's available for free download on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other platforms. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.